Sounds and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum, thanks for joining us. In light of what's been happening in Sudan recently, we decided to take a look at an aspect of the story that we felt is not being covered. So Sacred Footsteps writers Omar Rice and Moazam Mir spoke to Thuraya, Mandur and Ihab about their experiences in Sudan from the perspective of the Sudanese diaspora. The first voice you will hear is Omar's. I think it's best that we start with, we have, I think this is the record number of how many people we've had on a podcast episode. Uh, and in light of this issue, uh, sorry, this discussion being important as it is, uh, I want to make sure that everyone is familiar with one another and our, and our listeners can get to know um, all of you. So I'm going to start with just quick introductions. Um, Thuraya, if I could just ask you to start just with your name, your, you know, what you're doing uh, in your background and maybe your quick experiences in Sudan. Um, okay, uh, so my name is Thuraya Tariq Abed. Um, I was born in Sudan. I lived there for two years and um, my family moved to a country within South Africa called Lesotho. Um, I then moved to England when I was seven and lived here till I was 17, moved back to Sudan for five years to finish med school and then moved back last year or no, 2017. Um, and my experience in Sudan was very interesting and I'm looking forward to sharing that um, with you all. Um, I think it's different to a lot of people um, in the sense that I was exposed to some really positive things and some really negative things um, within the healthcare system over there. Um, and I was, I was able to compare it to being raised here in the UK. I think Sudan is an important country to talk about um, politically and socially. And yeah, looking forward to sharing this space with all of you. Perfect. Thanks so much. And Mandur, if you want to just kind of give us an overview. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, so Mando Mahadi here. I was actually born in Sudan, uh, but raised in the UK uh, with my parents and two siblings throughout my entire life. Um, from a professional kind of background, um, I, I come from a background in civil engineering. I did my undergrad and postgrad here in the UK. Um, and I'm very passionate about design and engineering in general. On a more personal level, um, I would consider myself as being very Sudanese alongside all all my um, friends on this uh, podcast. Um, although I wasn't, I didn't live in Sudan. Um, it's been a, it's been a number of um, yearly visits to the motherland, along with my parents and siblings, that has really kept me engaged with my community and and roots. Um, I think that Sudan, just like Thuraya, is such a important country to talk about it's not just our homeland but it's a country that has so much potential to um to, to offer its its people our people and and so many opportunities to offer the world as well so i'm very excited to be on this podcast and share the space with um, people who are enthusiastic on Sudan. perfect thank you so much and ihab hey how's it going this is ihab al-tayyib uh I was born in Sudan, moved from Sudan when I was one to uh, the Middle East, Dubai, and uh, spent majority of my life there and then moved to the United States uh, four years ago to pursue a college basketball career. I'm currently at Texas A&M University uh, playing basketball and uh, getting my undergrad in construction engineering. Uh, like everybody in this podcast, you know, I share... Uh, uh, a very strong passion to the motherland, uh, Sudan, and uh, really love the culture and, 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 you know, the kindness of the people. And I feel like uh, it has become my purpose to give back to the motherland in a way. And uh, hopefully I could uh, elaborate more on why that purpose came out uh, during this episode. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I think 
you know, this idea of giving back is, is a perfect way to start this discussion. We at Sacred Footsteps at the moment are currently trying to do, um, you know, a series on diaspora experiences and diaspora-related conversations. And this episode is the first of what we hope to be, um, you know, an ongoing series on similar diaspora-related conversations. And uh, we thought that it was it was important and almost a necessity to start with Sudan, as Mazam mentioned, to put in the perspectives of everyday Sudanese people, as well as people from the diaspora, so that you know the the uprisings and revolution in Sudan aren't just seen as statistics, and you know the brutalization can have uh, some context. So, growing up, you know what the what did the Sudan for for a lot of people that uh, some of you that were born there? What did the Sudan of of your past resemble, and what were the experiences like for you? Um. So, growing up, I mean, I was two when I left Sudan, so I can't really recall that Sudan. Just the the only memories I have from that are the ones that my parents speak about, and I think especially like the children of diaspora. Um, they always hear about a Sudan that was great, a Sudan that was rich um, in resources, a Sudan that we don't necessarily recognize. I think the Sudan that we've been exposed to is very, very different to the Sudan that um, our parents have experienced. Um, For sure. But in the context of your own experiences as a child, even though you left there at two, like what were your experiences visiting back? And, you know, what was that experience and interaction with Sudan like in your childhood? So, yeah, it was one of um, just getting to know where we're really from. So every time we went back, um, our parents would make an effort to make sure that we did stay connected um, and we didn't isolate ourselves. Um, so I remember one holiday, um, they enrolled me into um, a, govern- a governmental school in Sudan, um, which was very shocking to me because I, at this point, I the Arabic that I knew was just the Arabic that we spoke at home. The culture I knew was just the culture that we had at home, which was what my parents were, were trying to, to do to keep us um, connected. So we'd we'd watch Arabic TV shows, we'd eat Sudanese food, but still there was a difference. So when I went there, there was a lot of um, cultural differences that I I just wasn't exposed to before. So I was very confused. I remember um, I went to school one day after getting um, henna printed on my hands um, and all the girls were um, making fun of me and, and I didn't understand it. They were like, oh, like uh, in Arabic, oh, did you... Did you get circumcised? Did you get circumcised? Is that why you have henna? And I, I didn't even know the Arabic word for that. And when I went back home and I asked my mum, I was about seven at the time. Um, and when I went back home to ask my mum what that meant, my mum just laughed and shrugged it off. Um, and then just that was always that was always a question in my mind. And I didn't know what that meant until I went to uni and was obviously exposed to the word a lot. Um, and then I started filling the gaps in my memory. Um, but I think the reason I mentioned that story was just to highlight the the effort that my parents made to um, try and try and keep us connected as much as possible. But what the downfalls of that when there's things you haven't been exposed to? For sure. And in terms of like your experience, you mentioned that you you were grow, um, when you were a child, you were visiting back to Sudan. What? Like, what was that kind of a, what, what were the reasonings behind your parents? Like, were there, were there, you know, cultural motivations that your parents really wanted to, you know, expose you to the Sudanese culture? Or was there just like, you know, annual visits that your parents would make? What were the motivations behind that? I think, yeah, mainly they just wanted to make sure that um, even though they'd taken us away from that culture, um, we were still connected to it. Um, and I think, they they were always wary that we were going to be exposed to two cultures, but they just wanted to give us a strong foundation um, to just build our characters from that and to just um, just get make the most of life really in general, which I think is is really important because I do have friends who whose parents would just want them to 
keep everything Sydney's about them and just isolate themselves from the community they're in, whether it's the British community, American or Canadian, etc. Um, whereas I have other friends whose parents didn't really make an effort to keep them connected um, and that's made their internal conflict even more difficult as they grew up. Almost like some sort of an identity crisis, you know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, Ihab, similar question, you know, like what, because you specifically, you mentioned you were born in in the Sudan and then you were raised in the Middle East in various parts. Uh, you mentioned the UAE and Jordan. So how, you know, how long were you in Sudan uh, in your childhood and how has that experience of growing up in the Sudan really kind of influenced how you travel to the rest of the world, you know, now that you're in the States, how does that identity play in part, uh, factor into who you are? Right. So, I mean, living in Dubai uh, for a majority of my life, you know, I'm, I'm really like a three hour flight away. So uh, I was very lucky to, to, to reside there and, and be able to go back home pretty much like sometimes twice a year. But I don't recall while I was in Dubai that I missed the year of not going back home. And, uh, you know, as a child, uh, I haven't really seen much when I was born there. But but during my stay in Dubai and going back home for vacations, like, it slowly grew inside of me to, to, to where I was excited to when the vacation time came, you know. And uh, and I think, like, just, just growing up there, uh, the experiences I got from Sudan was way more significant because at that point in time, it was... Uh, it was like a foreign environment to me somehow compared to Dubai, but I was always uh, very enthusiastic of, 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 of my experiences there. And they always kind of resonated with me in the sense that, you know, they were different. It wasn't just my regular routine life that I had in Dubai. And uh, I think every, uh, I mean, every dominant uh, part of my characteristics or personality has come from experiences as such in Sudan. Uh, and it really built inside of me to 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 really like want to give back and 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 make a change in a country that I feel is home to me. You know, even though I was residing residing in Dubai, but even as a child, I felt like home is Sudan. You know, and and uh, that kind of grew grew up on me as as I grew up, and 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 the more I grew up, I figured that there there has to be a way where uh, as a young guy, I can actually give back to my motherland instead of just going with get, going on vacations as a foreigner, being looked at as, you know, like, yeah, you're one of us, but not really, you know. So, so I had to break that barrier and actually take the extra step into, into really giving back to the country, uh, which made me feel even more Sudanese than people who are just residing there, if that makes sense. Right. You people would say to you that you're not one of us or you're you know you don't they they made a they made a cognizant um you know way to per, like distinguish you from others how was that in your in your own psyche like how what kind of impact did that have right so honestly just to start off uh, answering that question i think people in sudan think that uh anybody that lives abroad uh, is privileged and and is somebody that pretty much kind of won the lottery ticket, you know. Like you're so lucky that you left Sudan because of the of the of the of the low living standards, because of the dictatorship that's been there for 30 years, you know, and the economy crisis. So anybody that's within the diaspora is looked at as privileged, you know. So so going back to Sudan uh, at some point, you know, my family would make me feel like I'm part of it. And, and lucky enough, I spoke very fluent uh, Sudanese dialect. So it was very hard to tell that I wasn't from Sudan, but uh, or like having resided in Sudan. But uh, I think to a lot of people that knew I was coming from the outside, you know, they'd call me names like what the Limarat, which means the son of, or what Dubai, which is like the son of Dubai, you know. And uh, I think at that point, like, uh, Maybe as a youngster, it didn't really uh, it didn't really hit me as much because I was doing a lot of activities that I thought uh, made me even more Sudanese. But to the Sudanese people, it's probably like regular day to day uh, living. Uh, but I think like in my psyche, just personally as a young boy, like I felt that I needed to do something to to, to kind of break that gap of 
being called a foreigner or outsider in my own motherland, you know? And I think my family did a great job into involving me uh, within the community and, 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 and giving me that freedom of, of roaming around in the streets of Sudan, which were very safe at the time, you know, for an 11, 12-year-old boy to kind of just take the public transportation, go to my uncle's house, go to my aunt's house, go to the souk, you know, where the, the, the public market, so, you know, I, I think, and, and, and those, are the, those are the things that really resonated with me and kind of broke that psyche of having, uh, uh, being called a foreigner, being called, you know, an outsider. For sure. I do want to come back to something that you touched upon, this idea of working twice as hard to feel like you belong. But I want to make sure that I get uh, Mandur as well on, in on this. Like, Mandur, what was your experience in terms of, you know, you, you said you grew up in, uh, in large part in the how was this idea of a motherland that Ihab is talking about that with certainty he knew that this was like Sudan was home did you also experience that that was Sudan always this home for you or was there some kind of a dichotomy that existed between your British identity and your Sudanese identity yeah absolutely so um so both um and I, I think it's good to start with the sense that yeah because I was brought up here in the UK throughout my whole life um but growing up in a Sudanese household like I had, like Fereya, uh, speaking Arabic at home, but then going to school here in London and speaking English and, and, and having this dual identity, you do grow up to feel that you do, you do question your identity in a way. Um, but I, I would owe kind of my search for identity um, and discovering my, my identity in a way um, really to my parents. Um, because they made a huge effort to ensure that me and my two sisters um, were connected to our roots. And they did that by, uh, by many, many, many ways. I think the primary being ensuring that we visited Sudan um, on a yearly basis during our summer holidays. Um, and then, and I found that growing up and, and taking one to two months uh, and spending it in Sudan with your family, with your extended family, um, with with uh, making new relationships with people, locals, friends, and so on, and that really helped inform um, my identity from a young age, um, and I think that was really important. Uh, and uh, I can draw upon so many memories, um, just just family experiences or experiences uh, of traveling the streets or taking the public transport to get from A to B, um, which really like enabled me to discover who I really am. Um, and I think one such memory that that kind of um, kind of hits home is is an experience I had with my dad um, in Undermans Central Central Souk, um, and the whole idea behind that was uh, on one kind of summer summer holiday visit, my dad discovered that I was just uh, spending the holiday just going to nice places, being spoilt by relatives, um, just constantly eating out at restaurants and so on and so on. So um, and just sleeping in, sleeping really late, waking up uh, really late as well. And I remember him coming into my room. And I was quite young at this point in time. He comes into my room and at like 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, and he's like, gum, gum. <laughs> That's basically translation for get up. And I'm like, where are we going? Um, and he's like, I'm taking you, um, taking you somewhere. And he seems quite annoyed. Um, but anyway, fast tracking the story, we, we end up in Underman's Central Silk. Um, and as me and my dad kind of navigate through the Sog, um and just explore, explore the shops, speak to locals, um, my dad starts giving me history lessons on Sudan. And he, he relates the Sog to being, once upon a time, a national treasure of the city um, and how it kind of, in a way, resembled um, a flourishing Sudan, a, a stable Sudan, a Sudan that, that was so, uh, that had, had its potential realized in a way um, and then relating it to the present day uh, scenery uh, and that was one of chaos one of ruins one of disorganization one of mismanagement uh, one of um, unhygienic conditions uh, and then the kind of lesson of the day um, which he arrived at was look I, I bring you and I bring your sisters to Sudan me and your parents, me and, my, me and your mum, we, we take you to Sudan because we want you to learn more about uh, who you are and what it means to be Sudanese. Um, and you have thus far like spent your days just 
eating out, having fun, and not really recognizing or understanding the point of these family visits. Um, and, and I remember him saying to me that I want you to, to, to be keen to learn more about your fellow Sudanese, like understand the problems, because we, we didn't used to be like this one day, um, once upon a time, right? We used to be, a, and we hear this, I think Ferreira touched upon this earlier, in the sense that our parents, our grandparents will always tell stories about the Sudan that used to be, the Sudan where the, um, the dollar, the, the, the Sudanese pound was stronger than the dollar, the days where um, Sudan Airways was one of the leading airliner in Africa, um, the day where the days where Sudan had a strong and, and vibrant economy in a way. So, um, so he ends that kind of lesson with, um, I hope that you've learned a lesson um, and I hope that you will take these, these vacations as an opportunity to understand and know more about your people and the struggles that they face. And I hope that one day when you are ready, you'll, be, you'll come back and, and try and be a part of the change that needs to come into our country. Um, so, so reflecting on that, um, that was a very powerful memory for me personally. One that's, it really informed so many decisions in my life. Um, I think one of the main ones being the career I chose to go in, so civil engineering and, and aligning that to the idea that someday I wanted to uh, be involved in an industry which would enable me to improve, help improve infrastructure back home in Sudan. So, um, so yeah, very powerful memory. Um, mm. And I for think sure. literally coupled by by our like being exposed in the Sudanese community here in the UK. And again, my own curiosity to uh, really understand more about the history of my country and, and read up. Um, it, it's what's made me realize that I am Sudanese. Um, and whilst I do live in the UK and I have this British citizen identity as well, um, I think growing up, I realized that I didn't need to be either this or either that I can choose who I wanted to be. And I think that was a powerful, lesson I learned from a young young age. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. That story specifically, I think, points to this this theory about, not this theory, but this theme of awareness, I think. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of you have already touched on this um, awareness seeking and this, you know, almost like a veil, veil being lifted from your, from your eyes about what Sudan really is. And I think there's all there's all kinds of positives that comes uh, with you know knowledge seeking and being more invested in our homeland, but I'm sure that there's a lot of things that seem um, shocking, things that almost seem taboo to us. And I um, I think Moazim has a question about um, you know what that experience is like. So Moazim. Yeah, so um, I was actually um, quite intrigued, uh, Thoreya, by um, by your background. So I understand that you um, you have a medical background, and you actually um, began your career, if 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 I'm not wrong, in in um, the in the medical practice in Sudan. And um, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that, and I wanted to ask you about um, the cultural differences you saw um, within the medical community uh, living in Sudan um, as compared to the UK. Um, so there is. Definitely a distinct difference between um, both healthcare um, systems. Um, I think I'll start with the positive things that I like. I was really intrigued about in Sudan is that um, I think Sudanese um, families are very, very family orientated. Um, so there's this thing called uh, there's a cultural thing called al arbarin. Um, so after a lady has a baby, um, her family stays with her for 40 days and she'll constantly have visitors, um, constantly have people cooking her food. She'll never be left alone. Um, so I noticed that there, like postpartum depression um, or postpartum blues, it was it was there, but it just wasn't as prevalent um, as in the UK. And when I like spoke to my mum, who's also got a... Um, who's got psychiatry in her background um she said yeah like these things definitely do make a difference that family support and not just family but neighbors really does help um your mental well-being which I loved over there um and then there's the negative things the lack of resources the like undeniable poverty that I got exposed to as a medical student, which I wouldn't have probably gotten exposed to had I just been visiting um, for holidays. 
and then coming to the UK, um, it just made me, I think, more resilient. And my outlook on life definitely changed um, in that respect. And I mean, after having then been exposed to, um, you know, uh, all this stuff and um, after having, you know, visited Sudan as probably from the perspective of somebody who's just on holiday to suddenly living in Sudan and, you know, being being in, in the middle of, um, you know, all these all these matters. I can I can only imagine like your, your perspective towards, you know, your home must have changed as well, like um, over the years. I mean, from the first year you lived there till I think it was the, the fifth year. You see, I think I heard you mention earlier or something. Uh, you were there for about five years, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, my perspective definitely did change. Um, I mean, things changed for the better. And I think some things changed for the worse. I think when I went there, I did romanticize this idea of home and I, a home that wanted me and a home that... Um, would be willing to accept me but when I got there um like he had mentioned earlier um you're labeled as the son that for, like he said the son of the Emirates or the son of Dubai for me it was yeah bit London um daughter of London and it was it, that I think for me that was quite painful until I like I I always tried to make an effort to not not um I don't know how to word this but basically I didn't make the effort to try and get to know my country as much as possible rather than make it about oh the whole child of the diaspora I don't know I don't know anything about this place um and because I'd been visiting like almost every year for the past 17 years um I didn't think it would I didn't think it would be that hard um but when you get labeled as separate from them it does it does dishearten you um yes I think slowly I did um I did warm to everything and everyone. Um, I I just tried to understand their point of view. Like you said, it can be mm. it can be quite. It does sound frustrating as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it was definitely frustrating, especially if um, um, my grandma, Allah God um, rest her soul, used to always call me and be like, "Why aren't you visiting?" Like your dad, when he used to live here, there wasn't a day he wouldn't go by. Uh, there wasn't a day that would go by where he wouldn't um, visit me and it was just hard to like um, explain to her that I'm I'm just busy with the university I'm just busy with this she'd just instantly blame it on the fact that I grew up in England um, she would just instantly um, point fingers to to the fact that my parents left and, and when it had nothing to do with that it generally was my like university schedule it was very very tight um I had to study all the time but no she blamed it on me being the London daughter of London so and and it it was hard to explain these frustrations because even though I'd say I was fluent in Arabic um there's this Sudanese Arabic that you don't it's hard to express um, yourself sometimes when when it's not a language you've been speaking um from a day-to-day I I really I think what you're touching on is something that Ihab also mentioned earlier, this idea of working twice as hard to, to fit in. And I think I want to I throw that question back to Mandur as well as somebody else, who, as, as someone else who also grew up in the UK. Um, you know, Ihab mentioned, Mandur, that you, you, know, you, tend to per, you tend to be perceived as somebody who's almost hit the lottery, in his words. So how was that experience with you? Like, how did people interact with you as this other, you know, like son of London, um, what kind of steps did you have to take personally to mitigate that kind of divide? And how do you think that factors into, um, you know, the, the, that what I mentioned before, this disillusionment about what the homeland ought to be versus what it is, you know, how, how did that kind of uh, create that tension for you? I think my, my experience differs a bit to um, to Habs in the sense that I I didn't grow up knowing how to speak Arabic 100%. Um, so naturally, yeah, I, I do remember being in Sudan during my summer visits with my family and sisters uh, and, you know, speaking to locals um, or just, you know, walking down the street or cycling down the street and then being called Word London in a, in a way, like son of London. Um, and I think that kind of, in a, in a way, I, I recall just 
being in school here in in London, um, and then whenever I would say I'm Sudanese, um, someone could someone in my class would question and say, "But you live here. You've got a British passport. You're British. You can either be this or that." Um, but like I said previously, um, as a result of my upbringing um, in a Sudanese home here in the UK, but also um, in during my summer vacations, being surrounded by family uh, and relatives who made me feel very Sudanese, very welcome into the society, welcome into their homes. Um, it helped me um, uncover that 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 pursuit in search of identity from an early stage uh, to a point where I realized that, hey, I, just because I am a diaspora doesn't mean I can't be, I can't belong in Sudan, right? And I think that along with my um, my passion to know more about my country and um, going to events, Sudanese events here in the UK every weekend, going to Sudanese school uh, every Saturday, um, attending with friends and, and, and relatives, that really helped me search, um, search for my identity. I think in terms of where we are now, um, things, things are going to change in the sense that the diaspora has played a, a very, I think, a very strong role in, in standing in solidarity of what's going on back back home uh, during during what has been uh, a very um, successful to date uprising, one that has accomplished much, but at the same time, uh, we've lost a lot of people along the way. Um, and I think the, in, in terms of the kind of wider perception to how Sudanese on the ground uh, and Sudanese in general it, living in Sudan will view the diaspora, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change in the sense that you're not, I think it's going to change. What the revolution's done is united people. It's made people in Sudan and, and outside of Sudan realize that we are all, um, we are all one. We are all under the same umbrella and the role of the diaspora in, in supporting and standing in solidarity uh, with the protesters back home, um, I think opens up the door in terms of um, viewing uh, the diaspora as one of them uh, and as being a part of them. So, uh, so I think I think yeah, things things will naturally change, and the experiences uh, with time, and the experiences that say um, myself, Faria, and I have experienced at an earlier stage, um, will not necessarily be the same experiences that the young generation of Sudanese will experience in a new Sudan. Absolutely, I think what you've touched on is really uh, really important because I think you you've nailed it in the head that this idea of what. You know, this, these conversations are already taking place, I imagine, where people want to know what role is the diaspora going to play in the future of Sudan, especially uh, in the context of today's revolution and the uprisings. What will happen after the dust settles and what happens, um, you know, there, what happens on the ground and what kind of help will we need from the diaspora? So I do want to throw that question back to you because you mentioned, you know, yeah. that those kinds of notions are changing what do you hope is um is going to be the role that diaspora plays plays in the future and i want to uh address this question to ihab and Thereya as well so uh why don't you take first pass yeah so so i think that the role of the diaspora in helping to support a sustainable sudan um is going to be pivotal um pivotal um and there's because two twofold here there's so much that the diaspora can learn um from those on the ground in Sudan. And equally, there's so much that those on the ground in Sudan can learn from the diaspora. And I think one of the key um, areas in a way in which, um, which can help support this idea of a new Sudan and its transition to uh, democracy um, is, is the facilitation of uh, knowledge share, right? Um, is this idea that um, the gap between the diaspora and Sudan has to be bridged in order to help uh, facilitate that knowledge share um, and allow for an exchange of knowledge. Um, so I think that's a very that that's a very key key area which um, which platforms have to be made for for those to to bear fruition in in, in Sudan and beyond. So and I, I think the role of the diaspora here it's um, it's very crucial in the sense that you, there's so many. Um, Sudanese living abroad, um, from the youth generations to the um, to the elderly generations, uh, to the to the mid-aged generations that have 
experience um, that have worked in uh, very big companies that have worked in very big organizations uh, and vice versa in Sudan you have so many people that have experience there and I think facilitating that knowledge share is going to help um, empower a Sudan so I think that's one of the roles in which the diaspora can get involved um, uh, in supporting a sustainable Sudan I think there's many other initiatives that can happen from the outside um, to address the the brain drain right um, and convert that brain drain to brain brain gain and brain circulation um, and I think that's that's something that will naturally happen um, as we move towards a transitional period and beyond towards democracy um, in terms well, of we know what's going to happen from the three of you here, right? You guys have all expressed a desire to go back and, you know, contribute to the homeland and the changing dynamics of what the situation is on the ground. Exactly, exactly. And I think what we're seeing, um, what we're seeing currently as a result of this uprising is in many ways unprecedented unity. Um, yours, and I think you need the, that idea of unity being, on, being united on the one umbrella, i.e. Sudanese, uh, rather than being split amongst tribes, as this Ingaz regime, as they call themselves, has has done, and they've used obviously uh, religion and so on to conquer and divide and control. Um, what we're seeing today is this idea of unity, and I think the unity is needed first to then enable um, mobilization, uh, preparing the diaspora um, and those in Sudan to actually act as agents for bringing around that change. And once you have the uni unity and mobilized component working hand in hand, um, you're in a position to help empower Sudan, uh, either directly through um, incorporating initiatives that can help um, right. alleviate some of the problems in the country um, and putting forward proposals that can really help support a sustainable Sudan. In terms of like personal experiences and what I've personally been getting up to uh, alongside with Ihab, actually, um, is we're part of a youth group uh, called Sudanese Diaspora Network. And that's one of the spaces we're currently working in uh, alongside uh, quite a lot of other youth members around the world. And the whole idea is that we want to look at ways to, unif to help unify, help mobilize, help empower and support a sustainable <laughs> Sudan uh, in the future. Um, and I, I think we've, we've done some great work to date but there's so much more we can do. And I think um, it, it's, it's, although the revolution, like I said previously, we've lost so many in the way. Um, I think there is so much hope mm -hmm. in terms of what the revolution is going to bring around. It's finally going to bring around the genuine regime change and transfer to democracy that we've, we've been fighting for for more than 30 years. Thank you so much. I want to uh, pivot to Ihab as well. Um, Ihab, what do you think is the role of the diaspora, you know, continuing on uh, the points that Mandur touched upon, this idea of unification, uh, solidarity, but, you know, what are some of the resources that you feel uh, can, can be contributed uh, to the cause on the ground in the revolution in real time? For sure. I mean, I really emphasize on the point that Mandur made that this revolution really did some unprecedented change in, in, in the sense of uh, the unification of the Sudanese people within the diaspora. So even all the parts that we were talking about, about being perceived as foreigners, you know, being raised on the outside, this has now been broken. Because if you think about it, Sudan has gained global awareness uh, globally through celebrities, news outlets, you know, just everybody knows about Sudan. I mean, there was a BET performance dedicated to Sudan for the first time ever yesterday, you know. And and if you really look at that, the, the, the diaspora, the six million Sudanese people on the outside in the diaspora did that while Sudan is on the 19th day of an internet blackout. So you can see the strength and unity in the diaspora for the cause of Sudan and for the revolution. And uh, again, that comes back to something that I, I always say personally, that this is our revolution too. It's right. We might not be on the ground uh, first first row uh, dodging the bullets, you know, or catching the bullets actually, you know, and even though some of us will kill to do that, but we do have families, we do have careers to, to withhold here. So I would take that point into, into bridging that to, 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 to my next point, which us as a diaspora have 
three major roles. And, and I think it's very doable on a personal level, on an organizational level, like Mandur said, and, and just as a family level too, you know, anybody could do it. And uh, I think these three, three aspects break down to one, raising awareness, two, donating funds, and three, uh, lobbying to, to government officials. And I think I'll just tap onto each one uh, 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 slightly. One, raising awareness. I think the, the diaspora has, like I said, globally raised so much awareness. I mean, in, uh, on June 22nd, last Saturday, we had a Blue for Sudan Day, Ask Me About Sudan. So people of the diaspora went out wearing blue with a tag saying, Ask Me About Sudan. Social media was flooded with Ask Me About Sudan questions. And then non-Sudanese supporters were actually asking questions. And even Sudanese people who don't have enough knowledge to do so, uh, to, to understand what's going on on the ground, you know, with all the political uh, circus going on in Sudan, you know, there, there's, there's like, I mean, I call this an intellectual revolution in the sense that there's so much awareness being raised and people are so politically sound to a point that, uh, you know, they really understand small, specific political games that an average Joe wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't pretty much like digest, you know. So that's that's on the raising awareness part, and and I think the diaspora is doing a great job with that. The second part is donating funds. So it's 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 a lot of campaigns going on, started by young individuals, youth of the diaspora that are actually working with people on the ground, and uh, something that we call resistant neighborhood committees that uh, are actually spearheaded by the Sudanese Professionals Association. Who, who are taking care of organizing these protests, you know, and giving them momentum in a sense. So uh, these donations through these campaigns, for example, the Bakri Ali campaign uh, that's going for half a million dollars right now, they already hit $460,000. You have another campaign that had 360,000 pounds, uh, British pounds. You have another campaign that's uh, through Sound Hearts uh, that, that has hit 6,500,000 yesterday. And I personally know the person that started it. And he had a campaign for 5,000. Yesterday, later, he hit 65. So that comes to show you how united we are for the cause. And I really urge anybody who doesn't know how to help. I mean, donations go a long way. They help uh, injured protesters with their treatment. They, uh, they help take care of uh, uh, martyrs' families, you know, martyrs who are taking care of their family financially and have passed away in the name of freedom and change. They are being taken care of by the diaspora, you know, and all these... Uh, uh, charity campaigns in a sense. Um, I think uh, the third, the third, the third aspect, which is very important is lobbying. And, and that could be done on a very personal level. I mean, all it takes is an email to, 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 to lobby. Pretty much lobbying is making government officials aware and putting pressure on them to, to, to speak up on the matter. And a lot of people say, okay, what is lobbying going to do? But I mean, if you really think about it, you know, if, 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 if 50 people in each city email their government representative, you know, within that city, that will urge him to make a statement. If he makes a statement, then his, uh, his, his, co his uh, the other representatives are going to be urged to make a statement. And I mean, it's proven in the past few months that that works because once one congressman or woman or one MP makes a statement, you know, they all form a group of, of, of government officials that actually care about the cause of Sudan. And we've seen, like, for example, on the state side, uh, we just hit 100,000 uh, signatures on the petition that actually urged the Senate to, 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 to get out a letter called the Bystander uh, Letter for Sudan. And that actually condemns the military action in the Sudan massacre that happened on June 3rd, right? And then you have on the UK side of things, there's there's a petition going out also for 100,000 signatures. And I think there are at about 80, Mandur can correct me, 80,000, you know, and, and that strikes a debate within the, within the parliament to speak on Sudan, you know. And all these actions will help put pressure in uh, the military council actually. Uh, so transitioning that, that, that government into a civilian government, you know, so we can have democracy, freedom, and real change. So just to wrap this up, I mean, the role of the diaspora throughout this revolution has, has, has been very spectacular and, you know, just never seen before. And I think the main role of the diaspora will be after we gain our freedom and change, when people like me, Mandur, Turiya, and other youth who are very passionate in giving back, like how I started this conversation, are going to have the means and the channels to actually do so. You know, so Mandur goes back to yeah. his engineering, 
Toraya with her medical experiences, you know, me with maybe my basketball or engineering yeah. background and, and really put all the expertise into our mm -hmm. motherland, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and we'll be sure to provide links to all those causes that you mentioned. Uh, Iha, thank you so much for that. And Toraya, like, you know, I want to I wanna get your experience on this as well and your opinion about the role of the diaspora, especially as somebody who grew up in... Uh, you know, you spent some time there in your formative years, almost, you know, because you were there, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, during a part of your education. So at that time, you know, like that kind of identity that you already mentioned was in development, but also in the context of the revolution. You know, you personally or people with which shared similar um, experiences who have spent a, like formative years in there. Uh, of their lives in, in Sudan. How do you think that influences your role or, you know, people like you in the revolution? Um, I think for me, it was, I saw it slowly get worse and worse. Um, and it instilled in me um, this obsession with global health and public health policies. And that's what's like driven me to, um, come back to the UK to just gain extra knowledge so I can go back to Sudan. Even before this revolution, the power was always to go back to Sudan. Um, but with everything that's happened and everything that's going on, it's just kind of catalyzed the whole process of that and kind of just, I think, motivated the diaspora um, to speed things up and go back as soon as we can. Um, I think Mandur and Ihab covered pretty much everything. Um, I think the diaspora can support economically, which is why there's so many um, fundraising, so much fundraising that's going on. Um, I think another thing is developing networks, which mashallah and Mandurani have are a huge part of um, and uniting the diaspora so they can help the motherland. Um, I was recently talking to a very inspiring Sydney woman who's tr currently trying to set up um, a rape line between Sudan and the UK um, for um, any of the rape victims following the um, the massacre and happenings of June 3rd. So it would just be easy for um, any of the rape victims to get into contact with either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, so I think the diaspora definitely can offer their skills um, remotely and yeah so it's just that now and after this revolution is over um, we'll be able to utilize everything for sure thank you so much yeah I think, I think this has been you know a really fantastic uh, conversation and it's it's a, converse, a conversation that needs to be had and um, yeah it's, it's I think it's been very informative unfortunately we do need to to wrap up but I mean We've had, I mean, it's, it's been a very intense conversation and I, and I want to wrap, wrap things up a bit differently because I know that, um, of course, all, 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 the, all the things that, that we're doing are important and, um, you know, all, all, the, all the efforts that are being made are important. But I, wanna, I want us to remember why precisely, of course, we're, um, all this work is being done and it's because it's over, it's because of a country that people, you know, love so much and, you know, hold so dearly to their hearts. So on that note, I want to, I want to end um, slightly on a more positive note. And I want to ask um, our guests, uh, what is the most memorable memory that you've had um, personally of Sudan? Um, if you, if you guys could um, please share these with us, it would be so, it would be so great to end on this note. Uh, there's just so many wonderful memories from Sudan. I don't even know where to start. Um, I think my favorite memories were in my grandmother's house. And if it wasn't my grandmother's, in fact, not grandmother's house, but my grandmother's home, um, it was being by the Nile, as cheesy as it sounds, sunsets by the Nile with Jibana, um, which <laughs> is coffee. It was just, it was mesmerizing um, to atmosphere there is always incredible and if you had a friend who played the road then it's a million times better and just I think it's just being surrounded by that and being surrounded by um, people who love their country just as much as you do it's it's always unforgettable yeah um, so many memories to reflect on um, I think for me personally like I'll describe our people, you know, like their kindness, their hospitality, 
I mean, Sudanese people in general, like, are the most sweetest, kindest people you'll ever meet. Um, regardless of, of a person's personal circumstances, they'll always just go out their way to make you feel welcomed, uh, whether that be inside their home or elsewhere. Like, um, they're very welcoming people um, by nature. Um, I think another recent memory, because I was in Sudan um, towards it during the start of the revolution, it's the courage and the resilience of our Sudanese people during these difficult times um, and to and to really continue to press ahead for the genuine regime change and transfer the democracy that we, we truly deserve. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, uh, I mean, that's how I describe Sudan to anyone that asks me, uh, whether that be Sudanese or non-Sudanese. It's a country that has immense potential. It's a country that has untapped prosperity, which is going to be realized at some point. And it's a land where people genuinely cherish and appreciate the simple things in life, too. Man, there's so many memories in Sudan to, to, to bring up, uh, you know, but I think... Uh, what really uh, stands out the most to me is, like Mandur said, the kindness of the people. I mean, you know, you go to Sudan uh, to meet your family and, and the, the amount of love and, and respect that you get, whether whether you're a Sudanese or not. I mean, Sudanese people are so kind. They'll go out their way to, 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 to show you love and, and, and respect. And uh, I think some of the, the, the most outstanding memories to me is sleeping outdoors in the front yard of my grandmother's house. You know, taking boat cruises down the Nile, uh, <laughs> having small, uh, you know, uh, small meals with my friends after playing soccer in front of the small grocery store in the neighborhood. And, you know, as simple as those memories are, I mean, uh, they cherish in your heart forever, you know, and, and, and that will, that's what makes Sudan special. And that's what makes the Sudanese people special. That's why this revolution has gone so far in a peaceful stand. And, uh, uh, you know, I just want to give a big shout to all the resilient Sudanese protesters that are out there displaying to the world what a real peaceful revolution looks like. I mean, I mean, and hopefully, inshallah, may their cause, you know, bring them lots of fruits of all the labor that's been put in by by people like you, by people like people that are on the ground. I just want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to really share a part of your humanity with us, you know? And I think that is something that we forget in the context of the revolution of any kind. When we see war, when we see suffering, when we see statistics of rape, of, of you know, brutalization, children, whatever it is, we forget that it is part of the humanity that we all share in this world. And that is, a, it is our responsibility to really, uh, you know, cherish it and also, um, you know, share it and keep the light burning, really. So thank you to all of you for taking the time to do that with us. And we're hoping to release release this episode really soon, inshallah, uh, and with links all to all the causes and uh, important things that were discussed in the episode. So stay tuned and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. As always, all the links mentioned can be found in the show notes. You can find us on social media as Sacred Footsteps and Twitter as S Footsteps.